Dose of Leadership Podcast, episode 118. Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership Podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey, hey, welcome to the Dose of Leadership Podcast. This is your host, Richard Ryerson. Thanks for tuning in. Hey, thank you so much for all of your support. If it wasn't for you, this show wouldn't even be possible. So if you can, make sure you're spreading the word. Let people know about this show. Tell a friend, a family, a coworker. Let them know what you think about this show. And if you've got the time, please, three to five minutes, go to iTunes, go to Stitcher. Let me know what you think about the show. Leave a rating and review. It does so much to help uh, visibility of the show. Keeps us front and center in iTunes and helps me to continue to let me build this audience as large as we can. Thank you so much for taking the time to do that. I've also got a brand new podcast out there. It's called the Courageous Leadership Podcast. It's not an interview podcast like this one. It's just me for about 10 to 15 minutes. I try to do it daily. We talk about um, some leadership tip or tactic that helps you become a more authentic and courageous leader. So again, go check it out, Courageous Leadership Podcast, and, and let me know what you think about this one. Again, thanks so much for your support, and here's the interview. Well, what a privilege and an honor it is to have on my show today Guy Hache, the President and Chief Operating Officer of Bombardier Aerospace. Mr. Hache heads the leadership team responsible for Bombardier Aerospace, which is a world-leading manufacturer of innovative products and services for the business, commercial, specialized, and amphibious aircraft markets. He started his career over 30 years ago in the automotive industry with General Motors, where he held positions of increasing authority and complexity, first in Canada, then in the United States. Guy, Welcome to the Dose of Leadership podcast. Well, thank you, Richard. I'm really glad to have an opportunity to be on your podcast. I'm looking forward to the questions here. Oh, well, it's, it's, it's an honor for me. And obviously, you know, you know the, my listeners know I've worked at Bombardier for five years. It's a great company. I love the culture. And so I'd like to talk a little bit about that. But first of all, tell us a little bit more about yourself, how you got started in the uh, aircraft industry. Well, it's, uh, it's sort of a, a funny twist. Um, Actually, I, I spent most of my professional career in the automotive industry. Uh, in fact, uh, started right out of school uh, working for General Motors and uh, spent roughly the first 16 years of my career with General Motors. Then they, uh, they spun off a large portion of General Motors into a company called Delphi, which was the uh, Automotive Components and Systems Group, uh, which was about a $30 billion company with about 180,000 employees. And I, at the time, was one of the top executives uh, in that components uh, systems group, and we were given the choice to either stay with General Motors or to move on into the spinoff. And I decided to go on with the spinoff. I, um, I was excited with the opportunity of, of starting a new company uh, and maybe uh, even influencing a different culture. Uh, GM, as you know, uh, has had a reputation or had a reputation in the past of being a bit more um, stodgy and bureaucratic and uh, because of its incumbent position, very, very dominant position for a long time. So I decided to go with a company called Delphi, and I worked there for almost 15 years uh, in numerous positions, ending up at the end as uh, one of the top five executives of the company. Uh, and then um, I was located in Europe uh, back in 2008, uh, responsible for 
all of the European operations, the Middle East, Africa, as well as uh, the powertrain business unit, which so that business was roughly about $6 billion and, and about 45,000 people. But then the, the European portion of uh, General Motors, uh, not General Motors, of Delphi, was about 70,000 people. So I had two hats. And I really enjoyed that assignment. I was based in Luxembourg. I moved the, uh, the leadership team to Luxembourg, uh, which was originally, uh, you know, based in Michigan. And I was going on my merry way, um, very pleased uh, with, with this responsibility and this assignment. And I got a call. Um, in fact, it was funny because I got a call while I was in a board meeting uh, with the board of directors of our company. And it was a headhunter, and I, and I sort of said, oof, this is not a good time. <laughs> so I didn't call them back. Um, I, I answered the phone. I said, no, no, I'm, I'm not interested. Thank you. And they didn't call them back, and they were very persistent. And um, at one point, they told me it was uh, in aerospace, and it was Bombardier. Being Canadian uh, from Montreal, I knew of Bombardier, obviously, but I had not followed the industry. And I wasn't looking for a change, so I, I uh, respectfully uh, turned down the opportunity and, and told them I was honored, but I was happy where I was. But they continued persisting. Um, in fact, at some point, it wasn't the headhunters that called. It was actually the company that called me directly. Wow. And they asked me at least for, for a chance to discuss, and, uh, which I said, okay, uh, you can meet me in, a, in the Detroit airport on, during one of my transits, and I'll spend half an hour with you guys. And... And as I, uh, I met these gentlemen, I, I touched a culture that I uh, actually, uh, you know, really started to like. Uh, the, these people that met me uh, were different than, uh, let's say, where I was at the time, and it uh, piqued my interest. Um, I pursued one more meeting, and then I started reading about the company and reading about the prospects and the opportunities and the, the risks and the challenges they were taking, a uh, very entrepreneurial company. And eventually I was won over. Uh, and and uh, fortunately, I was selected for the position and, and started in 2008. So there wasn't a grandiose plan to change industries, but uh, looking back today, it was one of the better decisions I made in my uh, professional life. I'm, I'm extremely happy to be at Bombardier. It's a fun organization to be part of. Uh, it's uh, Even though it's a large company, it's still got the traits of uh, an entrepreneurial-type uh, company. It has a family culture. Uh, it can do attitude. The people are absolutely, totally engaged uh, in aerospace. I couldn't ask for a, a team that's more engaged than what we have. We have our dose of leadership challenges, I can tell you that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we'll certainly talk about some of those. But uh, the bottom line is that it's been a great move, and I've learned a lot in the switch. Yeah, you know, I, you hit on a couple things there that, that I found unique, too, when I transitioned to the company five years ago. There is a unique culture, and it's, and, um, it's certainly, you know, we're almost 36,000 employees, and we're spread out all over the world. Talk to me a little bit about some of those challenges. I mean, that has to be probably, from my vantage point, has to be one of the largest challenges. How do you deal with um, a company that's literally spread across the entire world? Yeah, well, I, I think it's a very... Um it's a very good question. Um, you know, setting the culture, uh, the tone or the personality of the organization is a, is a major responsibility of the leader, of the leaders, but also of the top leader. Uh, I think ultimately over time, the company will uh, take on a personality or a culture. And uh, if you're not uh, conscious of what that happening and, and not being uh, trying to influence as a leader, uh, it will happen no matter what. 
So for me, uh, this is the one of the things that I've, I've worked very hard at in, in the many years I've been at the top uh, of the organization, probably since, nine, I guess in the last, for me, it's been almost uh, 16, 17 years that I've been president of a large organization. And at the beginning, I didn't understand the importance you know, of, of uh, some of the things I was doing as a leader that affected and actually uh, created a culture uh, of the organization. So, of course, when I joined Bombardier, I was very, very cognizant of that. And uh, to me, it was very important that I sort of established the values, uh, the priorities, uh, the traits of the organization that we'd like to convey to external stakeholders and also to internal stakeholders like employees. So how you do that as a leader, of course, you cannot touch every single employee. You cannot uh, speak to them constantly. You cannot, you have to delegate a lot of that responsibility. So the one thing uh, that I do to try and influence the culture is spend a lot of time on the top 100 to 150 leaders of the organization. Those people I can talk to frequently, those people I can touch and I can influence. And of course, if I can influence in the direction that I'd like to have the culture move into, these people will convey and cascade the same kinds of values and priorities and, and traits that we'd like to have in the organization. So that's one of the means that I've used over time uh, to influence a, a very global, international, uh, dispersed organization. Uh, another one, obviously, is to have uh, systems and processes that support what you're trying to, to have as a culture. So within Bombardier, we have several of those kinds of things. One of them is called Achieving Excellence System, which is basically uh, a more um, overarching uh, lean enterprise approach but it's more about how you engage your employees and how they do the work. Um, you know, I guess one of the, the things that we do with Achieving Excellence is sort of the operating system. But maybe if I back up, it fits into something that we call um, the Bombardier Way. And in the Bombardier Way, we have three layers of things that affect the culture. And, 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 and one of them, you know, is... is uh, uh, the, the operating system that I talked about is more about uh, the body, but uh, there's more than the body. You know, if you talk about the soul, it's another piece of the Bombardier way. And then, of course, you also have um, the what you call the business planning, uh, the uh, you know the objective setting, uh, uh, the the priorities, which is more of the business function of it. So these three layers are very critical in how you can influence. Uh, how the organization goes. So, so the head uh, of the body itself is more about setting the objectives, creating the sandbox in which the people can work. Okay, and and basically, uh, all the companies have that typically. The body is more about how you do the work. So, once you've established what you're trying to accomplish, your vision, your goals, your leadership, the body. Uh, will we'll basically explain to the employees how things are done with this, this entity within this organization. And we use Achieving Excellence Systems to do that, okay? And there's very much prescribed ways that we try to have employees uh, carry out their daily activities, the follow-ups, uh, the way they meet, uh, the way they, they, they actually do things. And, and anyway, it's a very elaborate way where people earn, um, you know, some, some accreditation. Uh, during this process, there's a five level, uh, starting with uh, you know the lowest level being bronze, 
where you get certified as a cell, and, and if you do certain things, you become a bronze level, and then it goes to silver, and then it goes to gold, and then beyond that, the last one is, is diamond, okay? So five phases, and we've got about 1,600 cells that are trying to implement Achieving Excellence uh, systems, and they're basically certified. So this is one of the ways that you get consistency, standardization, and you're able you know, within the organization to create some of that culture of how things are done, but also how to accomplish the things that you're trying to accomplish from a business plan perspective. The third piece of the Bombardier Way is called the soul. And, and the soul uh, basically is uh, something more intangible. And it's more like the personality of the organization. It's more what you would call the amalgamation of all the values that create the culture. It's a soft uh, it's not the hardware. The AES is sort of the hardware. The business plan is the hardware. This is the software. That's much more difficult to influence. But you're, if you're able to be consistent, you know, in, in the way you approach things and the way you do things and standardize in the way you touch people, you start developing that personality of accountability, a personality of customer focus, a uh, personality of how you want to treat others, uh, how people are engaged. And that's what we call the soul of the enterprise. And I think that's probably the most difficult part uh, in leadership, you know, to try and influence, but it's also the most rewarding part. Because if you're able to get the first two, uh, you know, layers of activities in control, which most companies try by having operating systems and business plans, if you're able to do that consistently but also touch the soul of the individuals and create a soul across the whole organization, then you get engagement of the people, and they will do whatever it takes, you know, to accomplish what you've set out as your mission or your vision or your goals. Uh, we work very hard at the sole part, uh, you know, of the Bombardier Way, and we have and many different activities that I'm sure that you've had a chance to experience probably at BFTC and Learjet, where we try to rally and get people wrapped around, and that's what you feel when you get it within the Bombardier. It's not perfect, of course, but it's what you and I felt when we joined the organization that was probably different than before you came. So yeah. a long answer to tell you how we try to influence the culture, how we try to rally 36,000 people towards the same goals and the same priorities in the company. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I love, a, especially the soul piece, and, and let me just tell you from my perspective, I think that's one of the, the advantages and one of the great things. And, I, of course, I came from the Marine Corps, and the Marine Corps did this well. They focused a lot on the history, the traditions, the long legacy, the line, and the lineage. And I think that's one thing that struck me early on that Bombardier did well is when you learned about the, the history and the company and where it came from and where it's going, that goes a long way. And I think, you know, unfortunately, sometimes, you know, as you get busy and the craziness and, and, and you – if you lose sight of that, if you if you go back to that, it's it's so much more refreshing. And so I like what you said about the soul. I think it's so critical. Um, you know, how big was? I mean, is that what sold you? And it's what sold me anyway. When you said you were, you know, you're getting courted to come over to Bombardier, was the history, was the lineage, was the importance, especially being a Canadian? How much did that factor into uh, you joining Bombardier? I think it was a big factor. But I guess when I looked at the, um, there were many things that attracted me. Uh, apart from the fact that I was coming back home and, and a few things like that, uh, I think one of the things that really um, uh, how should I, excited me about the company was the prospects. Um, this is a company that is uh, oriented towards growth. Right. It's a company that's uh, oriented towards uh, taking some risk, entrepreneurial in the way it goes about things. 
but still yet has this feeling of a small company. Even though it's become a 20-plus billion dollar company, it still feels like uh, a small company uh, going forward. So those were traits that I really liked, um, that I really felt uh, I could make a difference as a leader, as an employee as well, not just as a leader. And I think our people uh, that join the company feel that. No matter where you are in the organization, you have a chance to make a difference. You have a chance to be given some risk. Yes, we make some errors along the way. But on the average, uh, you know, the batting average, as long as it's a good batting average, you're allowed to do that in an entrepreneurial environment. So those were traits that were very important to me. The other piece was um, they have very sexy products. Yeah. <laughs> so right. we have very sexy products. Uh, and it's very, um, you know, it's glamorous to be associated with aerospace uh, if you like planes, um, you know, we, uh, we build all the different variants of them, whether it's business jets, specialized aircraft, commercial aircraft, etc. So, so the product appeal was, was really, really good. Yeah. The industry in general is also a fun industry. It's remained, even though it's a global industry, uh, very, very, uh, very big scale, it's about relationships with your customers, with your suppliers, with other stakeholders. It's kept this, um, this feeling that, let's say, in automotive, we had lost over the decades. So that was another appealing part of it for me. Uh, one thing I'd like to get back to, Richard, that I forgot to mention in your previous question about the soul, I guess one of the things uh, that, uh, that, that distinguishes the soul from the other two parts is that, you know, when it comes to setting the vision, uh, establishing the objectives or determining the sandbox where you're going to be playing or how you're going to operate within that sandbox and the way decisions are made, most management teams do that. And they can basically uh, direct that. They can dictate that, right? You dictate the goals, sort of. You dictate the way you're going to make decisions, who makes decisions, and so on. You cannot really dictate the culture. Right. Well, people will try, of course, you know, try and put up some posters and, and, and slogans and things and say, this is what we're all about. But honestly, you have to earn the culture as yeah, a leader. Point. Yep. You have to earn it. And that's different than having, being able to dictate it or direct it. So that's a variant that I keep reminding our leaders is that that is very precious in how we behave as leaders, the example that we give, decisions we make on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, the transparency that we have, uh, candor that we have in approaching our employees, uh, whether it's being tough, whether it's being uh, empathetic to our people. Um, it's all about in the way you do that as a leader that will help you earn the culture, the personality that you want the 36,000 people collectively to have. And that's very, very important to understand that. And great organizations are able to earn that culture, you know, those values from their employees and earn their engagement. And it really props up the other two pieces that I talked about in the bottom body way. Well, I love that you said that the earning piece is so critical. You're absolutely right. You cannot force the culture, you've got to earn the trust of the employees. What are your expectations of your leadership team and, and the leaders uh, throughout the organization? What are, what are some of your prime expectations? Well, uh, there, there are many. Of course, uh, there are all the, the usual ones in terms of the deliverables are there. So I'm not going to spend too much time on that. But obviously, if they've set out a business plan or budgets or targets, uh, the expectations are that they will 
deliver on their commitments like any other organization. So I don't think that's extraordinary, but accountability is very important. Mm. Uh, we, we've had our fair share of challenges with all that we've taken on in the last few years, so it's, it's burdened the organization. It's challenging right now, but that still has to be there. But I think uh, beyond that, uh, for me, what I expect from leaders is is to be uh, is to be working very hard on on this uh, soul piece, uh, you know, in creating a great organization, in creating people that want, uh, you know, to contribute to greatness, not just that are here because they have a paycheck, they want to come here and, you know, uh, I guess uh, be the uh, the provider for their families and there's no other choice. I want us to be an employer of choice. I want people to want to come here. I want people, I want our customers to want to buy from us. I want suppliers to choose us uh, when they, they have different alternatives, you know, as a customer. Uh, example, you know, you want your suppliers not to... Uh, uh, to be, you don't want to be one of, amongst uh, people, you know, as a customer for your suppliers. You want them to say, "Oh, I want to really supply Bombardier because they're a great organization. And they're going to succeed." Same thing with customers that they buy, obviously, because of the promise we have in our brands. Uh, so, so this whole piece of being um, a company of choice to stakeholders is very important. Uh, I think in, in distinguishing. Um, let's say, middle-of-the-road performing kind of organizations to great organizations. And that's not easy to accomplish. So my expectation from the leaders is to, is to really um, drive this concept, whether it's customer focus, whether it's uh, how we treat our partners in the supply base, how we treat our employees, our unions, our communities, governments, etc., media, uh, analysts. It's all part of the... I want people to touch Bombardier to know that they've touched a company that's special. And that only comes through uh, what you require from your leaders in their day-to-day behaviors and how they enable their employees to make that happen. Mm, I like that. I like the the fact that, uh, you know, it's not about... You keep going back to the soul piece, and it's refreshing for me to hear because, you know, I, I agree with you. And you said another thing that struck me too, that, that the company um, is entrepreneurial. And I think that uh, the more that we can... Any organization can focus on that. The more that you can focus on, you know, calculated risk taking and and not settling for mediocre. Um, I love I love that type of uh, environment to be in. And I know that everybody that I work around, everybody wants to be in an environment where it's entrepreneurial and not mediocre and not settling for the mediocre. So that that's refreshing to hear. What do you think some of the biggest challenge facing are, are facing leaders today, particularly in aerospace, because it is it that's a cra- it's a crazy industry, right? I mean, money money leaves in big chunks and comes in in big chunks, and, and while you're waiting in between there, there's a lot of uh, I, I can imagine stress and, and anxiety kind of dealing with that. So, what do you think aside from that are the biggest challenges facing the leaders today? I, I think I'll answer that maybe in two different facets. One that is uh, more externally based and one that is, uh, you know, internally based. So I'll I'll start with the external piece of it. Um, I think our industry is going through a transformation. Uh, If you look at this industry, unlike many other industries that are more mature, uh, the the level of of, um, competition or the number of players in all the tiers is limited. So as an example, uh, you have Boeing and Airbus, uh, that uh, you know serve the large airplane market. Uh, for regionals, you had 
two players, Embraer and Bombardier principally. Uh, for business jets, you have Gulfstream, Dassault, um, you know, you have Cessna, Bombardier, but a limited amount of players. So it, it's, it's to me, this reflects an industry that is not mature yet, right. uh, you know, on a global basis. If you compare that as an example to automotive, uh, there's uh, tens of competitors, right? You, you look out there, customers have tens of choices amongst different brands, whether they're European brands, Asian brands, uh, American brands, uh, South American. I mean, there's lots of brands. But that's not the case in the aerospace industry yet. But it's heading in that direction. If you look at what's happening, uh, whether it's for large aircraft, uh, the, the, the duopoly that exists today, well, the Chinese want to enter this segment. Uh, the Russians want to enter this segment. Bombardier is entering your segment uh, at the bottom end. Uh, if you look in the regional space, uh, you have, again, the Chinese that have an airplane in the regional. You have the Japanese that have an airplane. The Russians, uh, again, more competition. So, so the model is moving from more of an oligopolistic model to more of a, a, a pure competition model. Not to say there will be 20 competitors, but probably five or six in each segment. That will change the dynamic of the industry. Because today, when you have an oligopoly, uh, you can behave a certain way, and, and it doesn't force quick improvement necessarily. Uh, but if you have five or six people vying for the same opportunities, uh, and especially if they happen to be low-cost or government-funded or they bring some new innovative ideas like Toyota did 40 years ago on quality or uh, Korea is doing differently with styling and the Germans with premium brands and automotive, each, each one of these players is going to bring a different dimension that will force us to get better much faster. So I think this is one thing that's changing the industry in that it, it will go over a period probably of 10, 20 years, and it will force us to be uh, improving at a much faster rate than we have in the past decades mm, to, to remain competitive. Yeah, I like so, that. Oh, just... so, so this is a pressure that's going to change uh, the lives of executives, leaders, uh, and companies in aerospace over time. Okay, yeah. so that's the external forces at play that I think are, and I could talk a lot more about that, but I think you get the point that, you know, that's going to change things for us. Right. Internally, uh, the biggest challenges that, that we face at Bombardier in the short term is that we, uh, because of these pressures, because of these increased competition, we decided to rejuvenate our portfolio, our product portfolio, uh, in a span of a very short period of time. As an example, we're coming out with the C-Series, we're coming out with the Lear E5, a new global, you know, Challenger 350, etc. We have a lot of new planes, and, and all these programs are very complex, and I know you know this working at BFTC, right. that these require enormous amount of effort. It's even more difficult today than it was in the past years because of the requirements uh, that are in the industry. So what we've done is we've loaded up the organization with an enormous amount of work in a short span of time, maybe in a four or five year span of time, we've got the organization burdened with tremendous, tremendous workload. And for me right now is how do you navigate through this period of time without burning out your troops, your leaders, still holding, you know, the commitments we've made uh, and that are difficult to hold because programs are notoriously difficult to do within budget and on time. So they put pressure on the financial side. They put pressure on the work capacity side in terms of organizational capacity. Uh, and then, of course, 
when you're going through this period of time, uh, you know, you defocus on other things. Uh, it's normal if you're spending so much energy trying to get this thing done. Are you taking care of your customers? Are you growing globally? Are you doing the other things in the business that you should be doing? So this whole organizational capacity and, and the burden that we put on the organization for me right now is probably one of the biggest challenges that I have and that I think my leadership has, leadership team has. The good thing is we're almost through it. We have probably another year, maybe a year and a half at most, where we'll have uh, absorbed and swallowed all of this work and we'll have a brand new product offering in the marketplace on many fronts, which will make us a different company. But going through this effort has been very, very challenging. And people are tired right now. We've, we've used up a lot of our financial resources, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, and it's, it's wear and tear. And, and keeping the troops focused, motivated, accountable in this period is a big leadership challenge. Yeah. So those are the two things I would tell you are the two biggest things. Uh, there are many others, but that I wanted to answer your question with. Oh, no. That, well, those are great answers. And, and, and yeah, and it obviously speaks near and dear. And, and, being, and seeing what the people are going through at, at the flight test center, and it is a challenge. You're absolutely right. And that's where, you know, obviously common sense leadership and, and putting leadership and decision making down the absolute lowest levels is so critical uh, to get through it. But you're right. And the exciting thing is the, the light at the end of the tunnel are these awesome uh, new products and um and um so how, you know there's a it's a good here's a good question is like especially as institutions get larger there tends to be this uh, dampening of creativity and innovation you know obviously bombardier in the aerospace it's, it's all about creativity and innovation how do you keep that going how do you keep that flowing uh, i mean staying ahead of head of the competition well again it's it's all a matter of um of evaluating uh, you know because at Bombardier, we don't have a real problem of, of lack of ideas or, or, or lack of, of grand visions in terms of what we need. We have to weigh uh, this, entrepreneur, this entrepreneurship or entrepreneurial fire in the bellies of all of our people uh, with what we're capable of doing and what we have the means to do. So for me, it's not so much, at least so far, after almost six years, it hasn't been... Uh, having to push along creativity or having to push people to come up with ideas. We have lots of roses. How do you prioritize? Right. How do you meter? Because we have finite resources, finite engineering, finite flight testing capability, finite financial resources. How do you pick the right ones? How do you make sure that we accomplish them within, you know, the committed levels that we have? And, and then, you know, not go through this huge period uh, of time and, and um, I guess burn out all of the people that we have because they are working extremely hard. Yeah. So we haven't had this, this challenge that you're asking about of creativity so much. I think we've, we're, we have this mentality because we're entrepreneurial to stay ahead of the curve, to come up with innovative products for specific niches and we're continuing to do that. It's more about how do we manage that uh, in an organized way so that we don't uh, you know, go drunk and disorderly on spending and, right. and get the company in trouble. Right. More personal question: who who is who's a person who's had a tremendous impact on you as a leader? Uh, I would say there's probably uh, many more than one. Uh, I can't, you know, you know, the usual answer is you say, "Oh, my mom, my dad." Of course, they've had a big influence on what's important and how I behave. Of course, uh, but when it comes to leadership per se. Uh, I would say I've, I've tried, I had a rule 
I had the benefit of, of moving relatively frequently uh, in different positions. Not now. Uh, the last 15 years, I've been very stable in the president's job. But prior to that, I've had a chance to move across the organization, been given opportunities, uh, promoted uh, quite regularly, etc. And one of the things that I, uh, that I made a very conscious effort of is every time I worked for a different uh, superior, a different boss, I would make a list of the good things that this person, uh, you know, that I observed of this leader, and also a list of the not-so-good things. And then I would try to make an assessment in this particular job that I'm doing today, whether it was a manager or a supervisor or a director job, you know, what's a frank assessment of the things that I'm doing well and the things I'm not doing well as a leader? And then when I had a chance to change jobs, sometimes maybe go to a different department or a different plant or a different division, a conscious decision to look at this uh, need-to-improve list of things that I had observed from leaders that I worked for as well as what I had observed on myself or assessed on myself and make sure, okay, let's try and improve this piece. You have a chance of renewal here. You have a brand-new team, a brand-new organization. They don't know necessarily your defects, okay, or your, or your weaknesses. Let's shore up those weaknesses. So I, that's really, I, I couldn't give you, I, there's probably two or three names that I could give you that you would not know that helped me along a lot. But basically, I learned a lot from each person and made sure that I incorporated as much as possible every time I was given a chance, mm-hmm. every time. Uh, there's one person that I learned a lot from uh, of things not to do. Yeah. And, and uh, basically, this person was a, uh, uh, actually a, an extremely strong leader, uh, he was a turnaround type leader, and he did things that turned around quickly, uh, you know, troubled, but it was not sustainable. Yeah. And, and and I learned a lot from this individual how to turn around, but taking some things that he was doing as a leader, but how do you make them sustainable? Uh, and, I, and I won't get into too much detail, but you, you can, you can um, how should I say, lead by fear and get things done. But it's not sustainable. Yeah, it's not. Yes, right. Well, how do you use, what kind of other levers can you do to move the ball, to change the direction, the culture, whatever it is that you're trying to address, but keep the uh, the engagement level, uh, the people wanting to still do it, even if you have hard messages, even if you have tough situations, people are still willing to go take on the hill. And and I learned a lot from that individual how not to do it. <laughs> right. Sometimes you learn. Yeah, I, I I've talked about that a lot, and I agree with you. Sometimes my greatest leadership lessons have been uh, working under bad leadership examples. You're absolutely right. Some of that's sometimes the best teacher. Last question here: What advice would you give to somebody? And I get a lot of questions like this, and we've talked about it a lot on the show. Is like, what do you do? What would you say to that? maybe mid-level or maybe even someone that doesn't even have the actual position or title, but they're right there in the middle. What best advice would you give them um, in being in that type of situation? I guess uh, in terms of advice, um, I would say if a person is there, uh, the first thing I would ask the person is, do you want to be here? Do you like being here? Is this what you want to do? Right. Um, I think if at the basics, at basic level, people are in a job, in a company, in a situation that may be difficult at the time, there may be challenges, may not have the right bosses, but if it is what you want to do, what you enjoy doing, 
I, I think that's absolutely essential because it makes the rest uh, palatable, right. and uh, and you can get through it, and eventually you do get through it. If the core issue is the person's not happy because they're in the wrong company, they're in the wrong function, or the wrong job, or whatever, the wrong geography, um, this is something that has to get fixed because nothing is going to make that better. But if the person is happy, they're in the right industry, they're in the right you know, company or the right plant, and, and they're going through challenges, I would say make a fair and honest assessment of what those challenges are. Many times, and I was a middle manager for many, many years, you know, so I know how I felt. Um, I always, um, not always, but often said if I could only be the chairman of the board or the CEO or the president, boy, would I change everything here. <laughs> And I guess you, 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 you think when you're in those shoes that uh, you can absolutely change everything. Yes, you can change things, but there's a lot of things you don't understand. And I know now, having been in those shoes for many years, that yes, there's many things that I can influence, but there's so many that are out of my control that, uh, that I didn't realize when I was a middle manager, okay, whether it's the economy, whether it's the Canadian exchange rate, whether it's the political uh, mood, where, I mean, there's many things, okay, that you have no influence on. So, so the bottom line is that as a middle manager, I would focus on what are the things I can control. And I would explain or, or, or try to convince those people, the, the, those managers, what are the things that I can control that I can influence within my team, within my peers, you know, within my function responsibilities, make a fair assessment and, and say, okay, I'm not going to try and, and boil the ocean here. I'm not going to try to solve world hunger, but I am going to get done what I committed to be, do, uh, to be done within, you know, my business plan, my objectives, and really focus on that and knock out successes. Yeah. Because there's nothing like, um, you know, the ball or getting the ball rolling with small successes that you build on and get your team totally, um, you know, on on the, on drugs because they they love having those successes. They love putting the points on the board. All of us want to have success. You know, 99.99% of the people that come to work actually are positive. They're not negative. They're not coming, you know, to cause trouble. They want to fulfill themselves in the job they're in, and you have to start the day thinking that's what they want to do. So how do you enable, how do you help them do that? And, and by setting those goals, by looking at what they control, what you can control, setting an environment and letting them free, making it happen, uh, will actually uh, make your job much more desirable and fun. And you may be able to change the company a little bit by doing that at the same time. Great advice. I, I, I can't agree with you more. I think, you know, f- you know, focusing on what you can affect, it's easy to get wrapped around the big picture things, things that you can't control and then lose sight of, you know, you can take care of this person to the left of you, take care of this person to the right of you, do this little small victory there. You're absolutely right. Focus on what you can affect. So great advice. Well, Guy, thank you so much. You know, this. I know you're a busy man and I appreciate you taking the time to do this. It's been a, um, a thrill for me to talk to you, obviously, because I'm, I'm tied with the company too and I'm proud to be a part of it. Uh, but thank you for coming on the show. What, uh, what, uh, sorry if I may ask a question, Richard, which, uh, which program are you affected to right now? Which one are you working on? Oh, yeah, well, great question. Well, I, I, you know, when I first started, I was with the, uh, I came on as a program manager for the um, uh, Model 145 in the early stages, about the same time you came on board. And then, okay. And then I uh, 
became the manager of project management at BFTC. Did that for a couple of years. And then two years ago, I actually fly. Now I f- I'm one of the captains on the, the corporate shuttle that flies back and forth from uh, which side of Montreal ah, and which. We probably flew together then. Yeah, I've, I've had you on a couple, uh, at least at least one time I've, I've, I've flown you on there. Okay, well, absolutely. When I, uh, I hope to, to see you then on one of those flights because I do use the shuttle, uh, you know, when I go down to Wichita or, or, or Mexico. So yeah. we'll have a chance to try and come and see you then. Absolutely. I'll, I'll, I'll make a point to uh, to introduce myself again. So that'll be great. Great. Well, thank you, Richard, for the opportunity. All right, Gary. And uh, if I don't have a chance, I'll wish you happy holidays. Get some rest. Yeah, same to you. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. Thank you. Richard invites you to become a part of the Dose of Leadership community. Visit doseofleadership.com and sign up to receive his free Common Sense Leadership ebook, a guide that highlights how all of us can learn to become calm, confident, consistent, and courageous in all aspects of our lives. Richard is also available as a speaker for your next event. Richard specializes in practical leadership and change management. He has a philosophy of inspiring everyone to think and act like a leader, which is based on timeless natural principles and common sense. You can get more info by visiting doseofleadership.com.